All right, then I'm going to ask if we have a volunteer to open in prayer. This guy right here. Amen. All right. Page 22 in your booklets. We are going to start chapter 7 this morning on the covenants. So, we have talked in the past about uh, Reformation history what it means to be Protestant, what it means to be evangelical, what does the word Reformation refer to, Reformational or Reformed theology, whatever you want to say. Uh, And typically there's three C's that get associated with Reformed theology. Um, And those are Calvinism, and lots of people just use those terms interchangeably. You have lots of people who just use the word Calvinism and Reformed theology interchangeably, uh, and that's one piece that's uh, a reference to how we understand God's sovereignty in relation to man's uh, responsibility, man's free will, how we understand that. Uh, Another uh, bit or another piece uh, is uh, to be confessional. That means typically you uh, respect, not as scripture, but you respect as helpful the creeds and the confessions of the church. So typically if, uh, if people are referring to what it means to embrace Reformation theology. It's not trying to start over again. You're not blowing everything up and starting from scratch. What you are doing is saying, I respect the history of the church. I respect the ancient creeds. Uh, And the Reformation era had its own set of uh, confessions that came out of it, um, which is something that might seem foreign to us uh, in our day, because we typically don't talk lots about writing our theology down. We live in a very emotive age where we feel things instead of think things. Um, but historically, Christianity is uh, concerned about thinking, about words, about teaching. And the third C that is often attached to it is covenant. Um, seeing history progressing through a succession of covenants. Uh, And covenants, of course, do show up prominently uh, in Scripture. And I'll maybe just ask, who can name some of the covenants that we read about in the history of uh, in the history of redemption in the Bible? With whom did God make specific covenants? Abram, yeah, and that's probably the most famous one, right? Is the Abrahamic covenant? That's right. Yep. Noah. Yeah, depending on how fancy you want to say, you can call it the Noahic Covenant. I had one professor who called it the Noachian Covenant. (laughs) Sounds like Star Wars, Noachian. But uh, yes, God's covenant with Noah. Anyone else? David? David? Yes, there's a covenant with David. Absolutely. That's right. Anyone else? Yes, Rachel. With Eve? Well, okay, there there is a covenant before the fall, right? Yep, with Adam and Eve. And that is a covenant. We'll, we'll discuss that. that is, it's a different kind of covenant, but it absolutely is the first covenant uh, that we read about in Scripture. Okay, so let's go through history. So we've got Noah, 
We've got Abram, and then there's someone between Abram and David. Moses, yes. There's Moses, David, and then the final eternal covenant is made. Who's the head on that covenant? Everyone can give a Sunday school answer here. Yeah, all right. (laughs) Good. Yes, Jesus. Okay, so those are the covenant heads. Um, Before we go into the history of these covenants and how this works and what the confession says here regarding that, what's the difference between a covenant and a contract if there is one? First of all, is there a difference between a covenant and a contract? Yes, there is. Okay, what is the nature of the difference? Oh, you started. You can't stop now. Okay, it's one-sided. Yep, yep. Whereas a contract is by mutual agreement, right? Yep, that's right. Okay. Yeah, and that's probably the main difference. Uh, is a contract is something people can set whatever terms they like, as bizarre as they want. If I want a pink Cadillac from Ron in exchange for me helping him on his farm for two hours of work as bizarre and as weird as that would be, we can do that, right? We're free to enter into that. The terms can be whatever we agree to, okay? That's a contract. A covenant is different because a covenant comes with the terms already dictated by God. There's no negotiating, okay? So this isn't a negotiation. This is God coming on his terms, the greater party to a lesser party, and just saying, here it is, and I'm putting you in this covenant, okay? And Abram, you are the father of many people. Okay? Moses, you give this law, and it's not up for negotiation. Okay? It's not up to negotiate. Here's this law I'm giving you. Now you represent the people uh, on their behalf, and you represent me on my behalf. It's just out there. Okay? And so one of the most succinct definitions of a covenant is that it's a solemn bond, sovereignly administered, with attendant blessings and curses. Okay, and that's another important thing. There's blessings for obedience and there's curses for disobedience. Right? And we read about, in, I think it's in Deuteronomy 28, all the blessings that come from obedience. Right? Uh, the Lord will make His face shine upon you. The wind will be at your back. Your women will bear babies. Your, your vineyards will be fruitful. Your cattle will get fat. Everything's going to go good for you if you guys obey. Well, what's the negative side of that? If you guys disobey, cursed will you be in the country. <laughs> cursed will you be in the city. Okay? Your women will be bearing. Your cows are going to starve to death. Your vineyards are going to dry out. Okay? Blessings and curses for obedience uh, and disobedience. Okay? Does that make sense? See how this is different than a contract? Okay? So it's a solemn bond, sovereignly administered. That means God writes this up by himself and he just presents it. <laughs> Okay? Our contracts are negotiated. So God just comes and he just presents it. He chooses who the head of humanity is that he enters into that, that covenant with. Okay? So first it's Adam, and then it's uh, Abraham, or pardon me, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Jesus. Okay? And this might sound like it's 
kind of just one isolated thing, but actually the way we handle, the way we understand the way these covenants work and relate to each other actually touches everything. Okay? And so those of us who are Baptists say, well, how is it that these conservative, Bible-believing, genuinely evangelical people baptize their babies? Weird. And then you find out through almost all of church history, that's been what everyone did. <laughs> Weird. How is that? Because we, we look at that and say, oh, you can't find a verse about that. Right. Uh, but their understanding of how the covenants relate to each other, in the Old Covenant, the little children, the little boys were circumcised regardless of whether they had faith or not. Okay? And depending on how you see that in the New Covenant, we do the same thing with the new sign, with, with baptism. We're not saving these babies with baptism, um, for example, but we're giving them the sign. So what we would, most of us would be accustomed to is parent-child dedication, saying this is, a, this is a Christian family. We're introducing a Christian baby into a Christian family. What their future holds, we don't know, but we are committing before God and man to covenant as a family to raise this child uh, for Christ. Okay? And the, the, the reason they get there, the way they get there, is because they do their covenant theology a certain way. Okay? And, uh, and Baptists do our covenant theology similar but a little bit different, and we'll get into that as we go along. Okay, so this does touch on lots of stuff. This touches on church government. This touches on your view of baptism. This touches on lots of, lots of things. So it's not just some random thing that you can say, well, it's, not, you know, it's an isolated thing that doesn't touch on anything else. Um, and I'll maybe stop there. I'm just trying to define this and show that this is actually a practical area of study. Are we good so far? Questions? Confusion? Okay. Uh, I'll leave it there. Okay. And to Rachel's point, and I don't think it really comes here, it might. There's two other covenants that we don't normally focus on. One is called the covenant of works or the covenant of creation, uh, and that's the covenant God enters into with Adam and Eve. And can you see that's a different kind of covenant than the other ones? The other ones are all God graciously giving something to us. The covenant with Adam is very much conditional, right? If you do this, then this. If this, then this. And it's more than just the usual blessings and curses that come with other stuff. Um, it's, it's actually history is going to go this way or it's going to go this way depending on what you guys do. So that's called the covenant of works. That covenant was broken very early on and ever since then there's been a covenant of grace. God kind of slowly but surely unfolding his plan to save his people. And there's one other covenant that's even older called the covenant of redemption. And that's the covenant with the three members of the Trinity inside themselves agreeing before the fall even happens, they're agreeing to save humanity. Okay? So there's a covenant within the three members of the Trinity that's often referred to as the covenant of redemption um, that they've agreed to before eternity. God's covenant with Adam, that one falls. And then these other covenants are all the unfolding of God's plan of redemption. So that's probably lots there. Before this last half hour, who knew that covenant theology was actually important? A few? Okay, a few. Um, and now you can all raise your hand. Who knows that they have a covenant theology, whether or not you've thought about it or not? Everyone raise your hand now. Whether you're aware of this or not, you have a covenant theology. Because certain things make sense to you in the unfolding of history and certain things don't. That's because of your, 
your covenant theology. Whether it's examined or unexamined, you have it, okay? Same as everyone has theology. Everyone's a theologian, okay? So the question isn't whether you'll do theology or not. The question is whether your theology is self-reflective and good or whether it's just silently assumed, never examined, and probably not very good, okay? But everyone's a theologian, including on here. And so let's pack this out a little bit. Section 1. Though rational creatures are responsible to obey God as their creator, the distance between God and these creatures is so great that they could never have attained the reward of life except by God's voluntary condescension. He has been pleased to express this through a covenant framework. Okay, so do we see how this is being set up? The distance between God and man is great. I'm going to throw this out there for a little bit. When people, if you're discussing something, let's say someone who maybe isn't a Christian, and they're trying to make a point that they're a good person, right, that there's good people and bad people, who, who are some of the names that always get thrown out as examples of bad people? That, those, those we agree are all in hell. Hitler? Yep. Murderers? Yep. Rapists? Stalin? Right? Lenin, the really bad guys go to hell. Um, but the rest of us are pretty darn good, actually. Right? Uh, but here's what this is saying. This is saying the distance between you and Hitler is much, 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 much closer than the distance between you and God. Okay? If here's Hitler and here's God, here's you. Okay? Fallen humanity is in a mess, and that's what we've just discovered. Okay? Fallen man is in a mess. Okay? So we might have degrees of how sinful people act in their life, but the problem affects all of us. And so how is God going to rescue us? What are the terms that he brings us to rescue us? Okay. So can we work our way to God? Is that the covenant? Could we work our way to God? Okay. So this rescue, is it going to be one-sided or two-sided? It's going to have to be one-sided. Okay. So is this a negotiation between God and man? Is this a contract that God's going to set up? Or is God just committed to rescuing people out of the pit? (laughs) Okay? But that means it's done on His terms. His terms. His rules. Well, isn't it kind of narrow to say that there's only one way of salvation? Come on. Come on. That's narrow? You defy God every day? You break His laws every day. You hate Him in your heart from the time you were conceived, apart from His grace. And then just out of sheer grace, He sends His Son to keep all these covenant stipulations perfectly so He can cover you with His righteousness. And that's too narrow. Okay? Let's think about that. The way we see God's one-sided action also comes into those kind of discussions. And it says here at the end, he has been pleased to express this through a covenant framework. Okay, so again, this is a one-sided rescue operation, and God comes with instructions, not with a negotiating team. He comes with instructions. Do this and live. Okay, do this and live. These are terms that sovereignly get dictated to us. And let's look at that. Who wants to look at Luke uh, 17.10? I'll ask... 
for a volunteer for that, and then someone for Job. Who's got Luke? Don has Luke. Who's got Job? Tim. Okay. So let's look at Luke 17. Okay, so this is in the story of the unworthy servants, okay? Think about this. So we've just agreed no one can work their way to God. Thought experiment time. What if we could? What if somehow we didn't have a sin nature or we powered through it somehow and we obeyed everything God said? Would that be righteous? Would God owe us anything? No. He would owe us nothing. We've just done our duty. (laughs) Okay? If you go to the car dealership and you buy a brand new truck, and lo and behold, that truck drives, do you go back and give them an extra 10 grand because I can't believe this truck drives? Like that's some kind of a bonus? Okay? If we fulfill every law that God has ever given, there's no bonus points. Okay, that's just what we were designed to do. There's no credit in that whatsoever, and we can't even do that. Okay, we can't even do that much. Okay, much less think those brilliant moments we have where we do obey God for seven minutes in a row, and then we think we're heroes. Okay, this is a one-sided rescue. We are not good people. We're people who are saved by grace. Okay, thou must save, and thou alone. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Okay? This is one-sided. So even if we fulfilled everything God told us to do, there's no extra merit on our behalf. We're just doing what we were designed to do. We were just doing what we were designed to do. Job. Okay. See, this is the words of Elihu. He's saying essentially the same thing. If you did everything God commanded, it's not special. You're just doing what you were designed to do. Okay? There's a story that always comes to mind when I think about this stuff. Who knows the story of Uzzah and the ark? The Israelites are bringing the ark back. Okay? And they put it on an ox cart. And remember, the ark was made with rings so you could slide poles through it because no one's allowed to touch it because it's too holy, because it's representing God's presence in the camp. So they slide poles through these rings so they carry it, and then they put it on an ox cart so no one can touch this thing, okay? Because it's too holy. And then the ox is walking, and the cart starts to rattle, and the ark starts to tip, and Uzzah reaches out his hand to touch it, to stabilize it. Right? The ark of God is too holy to fall into the mud. And what does God do to Uzzah? Struck dead instantly. Why? Because Uzzah had learned since he was a little boy, you do not touch the ark of God. It's too holy. You can't touch it. And if it fell into the dirt, so what? Dirt's actually obeying God. Dirt's being dirt. There's nothing dirty about dirt. You are not living up to what you were created to do, Uzzah. You're not allowed to touch it, okay? The dirt's not going to contaminate it, but a human hand will, 
Okay? And lots of people read these stories and think, oh man, God really blew up. Right? God really used to have temper tantrums in the Old Testament. Good thing we got him on his meds in the New Testament. Right? Because now we've got the happy, clappy Jesus who just so happens to strike Ananias and Sapphira dead and Herod. So maybe he hasn't changed so much after all. Okay? This isn't God bursting out with irrational emotion. This is God demonstrating his holiness. God is holy. Okay? We can't climb up. So covenants are one-sided. And I'll stop there. Questions. Does this make sense? Am I missing a piece here? Do we, are we starting to get a picture, and we can work through what the covenants, the, the individual ones, but do we understand what a covenant is? The framework of a covenant. Okay? Does that make sense? This is important stuff, so I, like always, I'm not in a rush. Okay? Clear as mud? Clear as Uzzah? Okay. What, what's that? Clear, clear. <laughs> yeah, Uzzah, Uzzah got confused there for a split second. Yeah. Well, and the same thing happens. Uh, there's another story like that. Who else experiments with the worship of God in the Bible? Does anyone else? There's another story. It's pretty drastic. People are, people are tinkering with the worship service. Strange fire. Yeah, Nadab and Abihu, Eli's wicked sons, right? The, this, this worship service that God gave us is really boring. Or did I, uh, was it Aaron's sons? Yeah, and it is Aaron. Did I say Eli? Man, my. Yeah, Eli's sons were also evil, and he died over and fell and broke his neck. Yes. Nadab and Abihu, experiment with strange fire. They think that the, the liturgy that God gave them was boring, so they start experimenting with strange fire. It doesn't say exactly what they did, but they were tinkering with orders, just like Uzzah was. Okay? These are priests, and they get struck with fire. They get struck dead. Okay? You can't just waltz in in front of me, says God, and do what you want. And I would suggest, if we see ourselves in a proper light, can we just do whatever we want in the church? Does the church work in a contractual arrangement or a covenantal one? Yeah. Who dictates the terms of what we do on a Sunday morning? Yeah. God does. Okay, we're worshiping Him. I've shared with many of you before one of my favorite Alistair Begg quips. What actually, I think, was the thing that got me onto Alistair Begg. Was at a Ligonier conference he was talking about orderly worship. And he said someone had come to his church in Ohio and said, yeah, the preaching was great. The people were friendly. Everything was good. It's all good. But your music, like there was no, this person was used to a smoke machine and dancers and all this. And said, but the music was just, yeah, whatever. It was kind of boring. And Alistair Begg's retort to him was, well, that's fine if you didn't like it. We weren't here to worship you. <laughs> okay? You're not the star of the show. We're here to worship Christ. Okay? Uh, and so we don't need bells and whistles. We need heartfelt people who are worshiping in spirit and in truth here. Okay? We're not worshiping you on Sunday morning. Okay? Sunday morning isn't about an emotional release, even though that can happen and it's good if and when it does, but that's not the point. The point is to honor God. We're in a covenant, not a contract. Section 2. 
Since humanity brought itself under the curse of the law by its fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace. In this covenant, He freely offers to sinners life and salvation through Jesus Christ. On their part, He requires faith in Him that they may be saved, and promises to give His Holy Spirit to all who are ordained to eternal life, to make them willing and able to believe. Okay? So the first covenant is a covenant of works with Adam and Eve. They're set in a period of probation. If you do this, this will happen. If you do this, this will happen. And we've discussed here their probation probably didn't last very long at all. Okay? One tradition says they fell on the eighth day. I think that's probably likely. So one day in, okay, God creates everything. There's a day of rest. Day one, face plant. Probably. Doesn't say exactly. But there is a strong tradition of an eighth day fall. Okay? So that covenant has been broken. That covenant has been broken. So now the first Adam fails, and this is why the New Testament talks so much about a second Adam, because God hasn't actually given up on the covenant of works. Okay? God's going to uh, send another Adam to fulfill that obedience perfectly. That's why Jesus is called a second Adam. Okay? So I'm going to go against everything we think we've been talking about, talk about we're saved by grace through faith. I'll also say this. Everyone in this room who is saved has been saved by works but not by your works, by the works of Jesus Christ, the second Adam. Okay? That Adam didn't fall. That Adam didn't face plant. So you are saved by works. Jesus' works who get applied to you by grace through faith. Okay? But God didn't just abandon plan A. He gets Plan A was what we're working with. Okay? Jesus is going to come and fulfill and repair that first covenant that was made with our first parents. And he does it through a succession of things. So let's look at Genesis 2.17. Who wants to take Genesis? Howard, who wants to take Galatians? Volunteer for Ray? And who wants to take Romans 3? The young men are eerily quiet. Oh, Aunt Evangeline. No, that's good. I'm going to call on that corner over there pretty soon. So you guys... Better be ready. Okay, so we're looking at this first part here. Since humanity brought itself under the curse of the law by its fall, it pleased God to make a covenant of grace. So go ahead, Genesis 2. Okay, there's the threat and the terms. Okay, we discussed this a few days ago. Did Adam and Eve die that day? Lydia says yes. Yep. Did, she, did they die physically, Lydia? No, they didn't. How did they die? That's right. Yep. Death doesn't mean we just turn into nothing. Death means a separation, right? Our death doesn't mean we cease to exist. Our death means our soul is temporarily separated from our body. There's a separation and a divorce. That's death. But the soul lives on uh, as we await the resurrection. So Adam and Eve did die. They were divorced from God that day. Okay? Their sin made them divorced from God. Galatians 3. Okay. There's a curse. 
See that curse? Who's cursed? Everyone. Okay. Is anyone in this room abided by every law in the law of God? Nope. Has anyone in history other than Christ ever done that? Nope. Okay. So, is this a self-help operation or a rescue operation? It's a rescue operation. Okay. And so often, my concern is that even Christians talk so much about cooperating. And of course, afterward, we do cooperate with God. But as though this is, you know, Jesus is my co-pilot. Hmm? Co-pilot? Who's in charge? If Jesus is my co-pilot, who am I? I'm the pilot. I'm in charge. Jesus is here to help me. Jesus is here to help me. Okay? And in... Uh, an earlier debate when Martin Luther would debate with Erasmus. Erasmus said, no, no, no. Us Catholics, we do believe in grace. We're all about grace. We love grace. For example, here's how grace works, Dr. Luther. Uh, If there's an apple up on the counter uh, and you're trying to reach it and you can't quite reach it, God's grace will kind of lift you up so you can reach it all the way. Sounds good, right? Sounds good. What's wrong with that view of grace? You're reaching for it in the first place. What does the Bible say? (laughs) We hate the apple. We want it. And if you want it, or we don't want it, if we want it, that's a sign that Christ has already done something in you. (laughs) That already demonstrates a change of nature. Right? So Luther said, no, no, that's not nearly a big enough view of grace. It's not that, you know, we try our best and then grace pushes us over the edge. It's all of grace. If I want the apple, that means the Holy Spirit is working in me to reorder my desires in a proper way, okay? So cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things that are written in the book of the law and do them, okay? That's all of us. So again, we can't get this in enough that this is a one-sided rescue operation. It must be. And then Romans. Amen. Okay? So can there be any kind of God does 60%, I do 40%? Is there room for that theology in the Bible? What about those Christians you'll encounter that are going to give God lots of credit? God did 99%. It's only 1% me. Is that view in or out? Thou must save and thou alone. Okay? There is no God pushing and we're pulling. This is God alone that is going to have to offer the terms of salvation. In this covenant, He freely offers to sinners life and salvation through Jesus Christ. On their part, He requires faith in Him that they may be saved. Okay, so here's the terms. He comes and offers eternal life again, just like he offered to our first parents. They failed. Now it's being offered to us again. Okay? Now it's not through, through works, like Adam and Eve had it offered to them. It's being offered by grace. 
And this pattern is so important because can you see how much, and we've, I've, we've tried teaching and preaching this way, typologically where you see how Jesus just follows the footsteps of Adam and of Israel, right? And tried to, tried to make that so clear, right? And, and the Gospel of Matthew makes this so clear, right? Out of Egypt I called my son, first refers to Israel, but really it refers to Jesus, right? Adam was put to sleep at a tree and broken in half so his bride could come out of his side. Christ was broken on a tree and open up, broken in half so his bride could come out of his side. See how this works? <laughs> Jesus is just retracing these steps, okay? He's retracing the steps. And think even of the similarity between the dominion mandate given to the first parents, be fruitful and multiply, you know, make my glory known all over the earth, okay? When that's repeated in the New Testament in the form of the Great Commission, you know how similar it sounds, <laughs> right? But now it's by grace. Now it's not by your busy work. Now it's by grace, okay? Go out and teach all the nations, teaching them to obey, okay? But dominion is in view in both cases. First by works, that failed. Now by grace, that we make Christ and his glory known over all of creation. It's repeating the same command, but it's achieved through different means now. It's not achieved by the works of Adam, it's achieved by the works of Christ, okay? So you can see, this is why if you're reading your Bible carefully, you're going to see all these echoes, all these stories in the Old Testament are really stories about Christ. doesn't mean they're mythical, they, they happened, but God can tell stories that way. Okay? So now it's going to happen by faith in Him, that they may be saved. And we've got a few texts here. Who wants to take Romans 8? Kevin, you got it? Who's going to take Mark 16? Inga? John 3. This one you can do with your eyes closed. I think we've all heard of John 3.16. Who's willing to do that one? You're a brave man, Caleb. You're going to have to do it with your Bible closed. <laughs> okay, Romans 8, 3. Who had that one? Okay. So you see how Jesus fulfills what Adam left undone? Okay. The flesh destroyed this, and now God comes in the flesh to repair it. Okay. When man caused a divorce, Jesus creates a remarriage. Okay. That's the, that's the story we've got to get into our bones. Okay. Kill the, girl, kill the dragon, get the girl. Jesus is redoing everything that Adam destroyed for us. I almost said that very unfortunately. To be clear, kill the dragon. Crush the snake's head. Mark 16. Who's got that? Inga, did... Oh, sorry. Okay, there it is. 
Mark's account of the commission that we have now. Go spread the word everywhere. Go to the dark corners of the globe. Go deep into the jungle. Go into the city. Go into rural southeastern Manitoba where people have forgotten the gospel. Go everywhere. Announce what Jesus has done. Caleb. Okay, very good. So again, that one's so familiar. That one we all know. If you watch a baseball game, there's some guy always holding that sign up, right? Okay. And let's not lose what's happening in that verse just because we see it all the time. Okay. For God so loved the world, He pitied this fallen creation. God had pity on us, seeing us in this helpless state. And He would have been perfectly just to leave us there. But He had pity on us. He loved us. So much that he sent his one and only son, okay, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So again, let's look back at these covenants in terms of dress rehearsal. This one, the one and only son. Let's go back to God's covenant with Abraham. What are one of the tests that Abraham has to fulfill to be a covenant head? Yeah has sacrificed his one and only son. See how this works? Interesting fact, I've told you this before too, uh, Mount Moriah, where uh, Abram takes Isaac up, 1,500 years later and after enough of that region being volleyed around back and forth, has another name in the New Testament. What's that mountain called in the New Testament? <laughs> yep, Golgotha. Calvary, place of the skull, same place. Same place, 1,500 years later, God actually sends His one and only Son to that very spot to complete and perfect what Abraham typologically was showing us back there. Okay, this is how this stuff works. Okay, this is how this stuff works. These covenants are rich when we see the terms that God is entering into with these different people how it typifies Jesus. Okay, we've talked about Jesus being the mediator here in Romans. Jesus comes in the flesh to do what weak flesh couldn't do. Okay? So Jesus can fairly represent both sides. Right? Jesus represents man, because he's a man, and he represents God, because he's God. Okay? And Moses escaped an Egyptian slaughter. Okay? Now do that again with Jesus. <laughs> what does Jesus escape as a little boy? An Egyptian slaughter. Okay? Moses has one nature by birth. He's a Hebrew. He gets adopted. What is he by adoption? An Egyptian. Can he represent both sides? <laughs> Can Jesus represent both sides? Do you see how this works? Okay? This is the romance of biblical theology. This isn't just remembering dates and verses. There's a romance here once you see it. Okay? And once you start to see this, you can't unsee it. Okay? Jesus is, and we sing it, we sing this song. Jesus is the better Adam. Jesus is the better Abram. Jesus is the better Moses. Okay? 
Jesus is the better David. David, let's do it with David. How is David Christ? And I'm, how is David a type of Christ? What are the similarities here? He's a king. He defeats a giant, yeah? He's a shepherd before he's a king. Was he the likely king among his brothers? <laughs> no, he's not the one everyone was expecting. His own dad wasn't expecting him. He was just the little boy off shepherding, right? Okay. He wrestles lions. Okay. He comes from the tribe of Jesse. And in, later in Scripture, Jesus is called a root from the stump of the Lion of Judah, right? So the genealogically, this all follows, okay? This is the richness of covenant theology, is seeing that the Old Testament is a series of dress rehearsals for what's about to come. That's where it's so rich. And I'll stop, I'll stop there. Are we getting eyes to see how this works? And I'm maybe not the one to do it, but if... If we see this, can we see doctrine isn't dry logic chopping? <laughs> can you see that there's romance in biblical theology? Okay, and by romance, I mean hidden meaning. I mean magic. I mean symbols. Okay, and again, that none of that denies the reality of it. These were all real people that actual skin and bones that actually lived in history. God can tell stories with actual history. Okay, so this isn't mythology, but it is symbolic. So can we see the romance of this? I hope so. Christians can tell a better story about the meaning of the cosmos than unbelievers can. And we need to tell it. And if our gospel is basically, Jesus is sad when you lie, and so uh, ask Jesus into your heart so you go to heaven when you die instead of hell, that's true. And for a four-year-old, that might be a perfectly adequate explanation. But as we get older, and as we read our Bibles... Can you see that there's a story arc here that covers everything? Okay. Now suddenly the stuff that's so far deep in space that the Hubble telescope can't see it is there for the glory of God. It's just there for no other reason than God made it to enjoy for himself. That's it. Okay. This is the kind of God we serve. And he condescends through covenants to deal with me and you. Let's keep going. We just did everything. Footnote 3. And promises to give His Holy Spirit to all who are ordained to eternal life to make them willing and able to believe. Who's got Ezekiel? Who wants to take Ezekiel? Can I ask Nathan Cron to do it? Okay. Oh, if you don't have a booklet there. Uh, Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. Tyson, you had your hand up. Do you want to take John 6? And then who wants to take Psalm 110? Going once. Tim? All right. All right. Ezekiel 36, 26.
Okay. If you've read Ezekiel, you know his dry bones vision, right? The valley of dry bones. Oh, son of man, can these bones live? It's a bunch of bones. <laughs> They're dead, God. They're dead. What's that a picture of? Us. Us. Okay. The gospel isn't a life raft that gets thrown out to people who are desperately trying to grab it. The gospel is a rescue mission for dead bones. <laughs> We've drowned, people. We're dead. We don't want it. We're dead. Okay? This rescuer is not throwing out a life raft to see who's going to grab on. This rescuer is doing a scuba dive deep down to breathe life into you. The bones are dead. You need a heart. Who can give you a heart? Okay? Who can say, Lazarus, come out? Okay? That's one-sided stuff. Okay? The gospel is not a life preserver. It is a resuscitation. We're dead. Okay? That's what Ezekiel sees. Can these dry bones live? Yes, they can. Because God can breathe life into them. He can take out that heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh that beats and wants to obey God. That comes alive for the glory of God. That sees life in Scripture. Sees life in the Gospel. That's the kind of hot Gospel we need today. It's the same one Ezekiel saw with the dead bones. John 6. Okay. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Okay, we talked about this last week. Is this a can or a may? Is Jesus holding anyone back? No, he's not. It says we can't. It doesn't say we may not. It says we can't because we're dead. Jesus is saying the same thing that Ezekiel saw. We're dead. Okay, someone's going to have to create life here so we can come to the Father. Okay? And then he'll raise them up on the last day. So again, one-sided salvation. Covenant, not a contract. And then lastly, Psalm 110. Okay. So after this has happened... What happens? Does God save people dragging, kicking, and screaming? Is that the picture you get? Kicking and screaming? Or now that they're alive, they want to come? That's the picture we get. This isn't against anyone's will. This isn't kicking and screaming. This is new life is coming out. Okay? Lazarus came out of the tomb because life had been put in him. Okay? His walking out is a response. It's not part of the process. It's a response to the process. Okay? And so here we see it too. We offer ourselves freely in holy garments from the womb of mourning. The dew of our youth will be yours. Okay? So there's life that's created here. And we're at 20 after, so we should stop. Questions on this? Discussion? Are we getting a picture of covenants? How this works? Great question. Did everyone hear Marina's question? If these covenants are one-sided, how can they be broken? Great question. 
Here's how. The covenant is never broken. We are broken when we kick against it. <laughs> okay? In terms of Adam and Eve, on God's side, that covenant is still there, and He's going to send Jesus to fulfill it. So when we break God's law, think through this carefully. When we break God's law, it's not God's law that breaks, it's us. Okay? If I'm that stubborn mule that's going to kick against God's law of adultery, God's law is just doing what it does. It's not going anywhere. I've broken myself. I've destroyed my wife. I've destroyed my family. I break against God's law. Okay? We break against the covenant. Correct. He just sends new people to fulfill it. And ultimately, it's all subsumed in Christ who does it. Because all those covenant heads, you'll notice here too, and we'll get into this next time. Notice how all these guys fail? What's the last we read about Noah? Drunk in front of his boys? Abraham? Was he crushing it? (laughs) Abraham's a sinner. Okay, He grasped at God's promise too quick. Got the wrong woman pregnant. Okay? But at least Moses. Moses is going to do this, right? Moses, right? We've had this history of failure. Moses is our guy. And he also reaches out far too soon and smacks a rock in the desert and isn't allowed in the promised land. What? We're 0 for 3 now? David. David's our guy. This is the guy. Humble upbringings. He's not going to get a... You know, he's not going to lean too far ahead of his skis. David's the guy that's going to rescue us. Finally, David... Destroys his family. Civil war. Adultery. Okay, so it's not going to be David. So who is it going to be? Right? These covenant heads come typologically to make us despair that a human could do this. Okay? So on their side, they break God's covenant. But really, they're breaking themselves. On God's side, the covenant is immovable. And Jesus fills all of those stipulations that get put on these other men. Does that make sense? How we view this breaking of God's law or the breaking of covenants. It's us who break, not God, not His Word. Okay, this could be a very fruitful discussion. Let's leave it for next time. Um, And let's close in prayer and then have some coffee and fellowship time. Father God, thank You that You are so gracious. Lord, thank You that uh, You're not coming up with this on the fly, but that You are dedicated to getting Your people home. Lord, thank you that you have sent messenger after messenger, covenant head after covenant head, all who have failed to show us ultimately the glory of your Son who does this perfectly for us. Lord, I pray for each one here that we would be fully satisfied in the perfection of your Son, that we would see that our whole Bibles are about him, pointing to him from both directions, all directions. Lord, and I pray that our lives would do the same. I pray that we'd go in peace. I pray for a time of warm fellowship, and I pray that you'd prepare our hearts as we... uh, Get ourselves ready to worship you this morning. We pray this all in the name of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.